Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. How good is it to be in the house of God this morning? Man, it's so good. It's so good to see you guys. I'm glad that you're here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Journey, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here at Discover Church. Man, I would love to meet you and to get to know a little bit about your story. So come say hi. I'll be out in the lobby uh, right after the service. So I'd love to, love to connect with you. I want to give you a heads up. Uh, two weeks from today, we are going to be jumping into a summer deep dive series. Uh, one of the things that we've done uh, at our church is every summer we, we pick a section of the Bible. Man, we go line by line, verse by verse, and just unpack. I do the best that I can to teach you what God is teaching me about that section of Scripture. And we're going to be launching a new series that's going to take us all summer long called the Kingdom Manifesto. And we're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most famous sermon. And Jesus, as the king of the universe, basically drops the gauntlet and says, man, this is what my kingdom's like and this is what I want my people to live like. And so we're going to be unpacking that. I can promise you it's going to be challenging. Uh, You're probably going to learn a thing or two maybe that you didn't know before. So whether you're able to join us in person, hey, listen, I know folks are going to be traveling uh, throughout the summer. Man, tune in on online with us live, have your Bible, have your notebooks, be ready to dive in because we are going to be diving deep into the Word of God. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, I want to jump right into it. We're starting a new two-week series, and anytime you hear a preacher say he's got a two-week series, it means he's got a four-week series and he's got two weeks to preach it. And so we've got a two-week series. I want to start off by just asking the question, how many of y'all had a mama that could cook? Have I had a mama that could cook? Man, praise God. I loved it. My mama can cook. And how many of you, your mama has like, like there's a handful of things that is like mama's specialty. You know what I'm talking about? All right. And then then you get married and then you're like, I want to try to make mama's specialty. Right? Did anybody ever try that? We did. When we were uh, newly married, one of my mom's favorite, one of my favorite dishes that my mom made was this dish called goulash. Now, I don't really know how to explain goulash. Um, It's actually a Hungarian dish, but the way that we make it, I kind of describe it as like an Italian chili. It's got like elbow macaroni in it, and it's got Italian sausage and tomatoes and a whole bunch of good stuff all up in the middle of it. It doesn't look like chili at all, but it kind of has a chili consistency. It's just amazing. And so we were, uh, we were newly married. And, uh, and Jessica was, you know, kind of figuring out how to cook. And I've been so blessed because my woman can cook, y'all. Right? Like, I don't pack on the pounds the way that I have in our 14 years of marriage without a woman that can cook. And I'm thankful for that. Um, she's great in the kitchen. I love it. Um, but I decided, baby, I'm going to cook for you. And she goes, ooh, what you cooking? I said, I'm going to make some goulash. She said, what, is, what that is? That sounds like something between your toes. Like, I don't know that I want any of that. And I tried to explain it to her. It didn't do any good. So I called my mom. I said, Mama, Mama, I'm going to make some goulash. She goes, okay. I said, Mom, I need the recipe. She goes, okay. And what happened next, if you've ever had this conversation, you know what happened next. Well, take a little bit of that and a dab of this and a handful of that and a little bit of that and then season the rest of it to taste. Mom, I can't go to the store and grab a dab of anything. I don't know what that is. I need you to give me the recipe. Because how many of you know when you try to make something, there's few things that are more disappointing in life, and obviously this is a ridiculous statement, but let's just be honest, there's there are few things more disappointing than when you're going to make something and you're so excited about how good it's going to be. And then you taste it and it tastes awful. Or it's close, but it's not quite right. You know how to fix it. So I told my mom, I said, Mom, listen, this is the first time for me cooking goulash for Jess. I need her to love this. I need you to give me the exact measurements. She goes, well, I don't know the exact measurements. I just eyeball it. I said, well, that doesn't work for me. I need you to come up here and eyeball my stuff. 15 years ago, we didn't have FaceTime. I couldn't just FaceTime her. Anyway, it was frustrating for me. I I did end up making it, and it was just marginally okay. Um, It was so okay that Jessica has never asked me to make it again. I don't know how to take that. I don't know. I don't know if I should be like, sweet, I did my job. I'm done cooking for the rest of my life. I'm out. Uh, But here's the deal. How many of you know that Sometimes it can be frustrating when you desire something and you do your best to make it happen, but it doesn't matter how much effort you put into it, you, don't, you never seem to quite make it right. 
Because maybe you don't have the right ingredients or maybe you don't have the right things that you're putting into it or you don't have the right measurements of stuff. And I'm curious today if you've ever been in a situation in life or if you've ever been in a situation in work or in your career where you were trying to reach a goal, you were trying to, to attain a certain level, you were trying to be successful in some kind of way, but, but, but somehow it just felt like you kept stumbling over yourself because you couldn't quite get there. Some of y'all are here today and you're in a job and you hate your job. When you think about your job, when you think about your work, you think about your career, usually all you can think about is getting to Saturday. You're working for the weekend. Dolly Parton talked about working nine to five. People my age and younger who didn't grow up in the South may not even know that song reference. But you're working, you're working for a paycheck. You don't really like your work, you don't really like what you do, it's kind of drudgery, you hate it, and you're just kind of continually working for the weekend. And when you think about success, you think about what can happen in the weekend, and hopefully that whatever happens in those two days of the weekend can get you through the next five days of awful so that you can get back to the weekend. Some of you are here today, and you're not getting ahead in your job, in your work, in your career. You're not climbing the ladder. You got passed over for the position. You didn't get the raise that you hoped you would. And the tendency for you is to continually point the finger of blame back at your boss. Well, my boss is just awful. Let me tell you about how bad my boss is. Well, the work environment is just not really conducive. You know, I don't really, it's not really my vibe. But there's always a reason why you're not able to, to get there. Some of y'all are working outside of the house. Uh, some of you don't work outside of the house and your work isn't necessarily for a paycheck. Some of y'all, y'all's work is the most, most difficult work of all in taking care of the house and the responsibilities of the house and all the humans who need things that live in the house. And maybe it was your dream all along to be a stay-at-home parent, but, but when you get together with other stay-at-home parents, usually what happens is, is you don't initially, how are you doing? And the first thing that comes out of your mouth is not all of the descriptions of all the things that are bringing you so much joy. That at some point you went from when you first started being able to stay home, maybe it was because you had kids or something else, you thought, man, I can't believe that I get to do this. But now you're in a situation where oftentimes you look at thing after thing after thing, you go, oh, I can't believe I have to do this. Some of y'all, y'all doing great at work. I mean, you're crushing. I mean, you're, you're, you're climbing the ladder. You're reaching the financial goals. Your 401k is stacking up nice. You're on track to retire. Everything is going great at work. But what has never entered into your mindset is the part of the equation that you were never there just for the work or the paycheck. That your God actually created you and designed you with a kingdom assignment within your place of business. And the idea of, of making an impact for the name of Jesus, maybe it has never really even entered into your mindset, or maybe it has, but you don't really know what to do or how to do it. And still, there are some of you that things are going so great at work, but when you leave work, everything is chaos. You're such a success in the corporate environment. But as soon as you walk out of that door, get into your car, and walk into your home, everything seems to crumble and fall. And if any of that describes you, then I believe that God has you here for these next two weeks for a reason, because we're going to be in a series that we're calling the secret sauce. What is the secret sauce to being a success? And the subtitle for this series is God's recipe for you to be a success in life and work. And we're going to unpack today what are the two key ingredients. That's the title of today's message, the key ingredients that if you don't get these two ingredients right, then nothing else matters. And then next week, I'm going to unpack kind of the, the, the second level of ingredients, the four other ingredients that you need. And I want to dive into it today because here's my goal. My goal is to help you see that you're not working for a paycheck. I want you to receive that regardless of whether or not you're working inside the home or outside of the home, that the purpose of your work is not so that you can make a paycheck. I want to help you see that no matter what your industry is, that God has given you a kingdom assignment that is twofold. The first part of it is that whatever environment that you're doing your work in, whether you love it or hate it, that God has positioned you there so that he can help cultivate some things in you that you don't currently have. As an example... Perhaps you are there working for that terrible boss, 
Because God's trying to teach you how to honor authority. He's trying to teach you how to have patience. He's trying to teach you how to, not, how to learn to take responsibility for your own actions instead of casting blame on other people. I don't know, I'm just getting ahead of myself. That's gonna be a little bit next week, a little bit of a snapshot. But here's the second part about it. The second part of the kingdom assignment that God has for your work and your environment is that you reach the people around you for Jesus. Or you think about this for a second. If you remove sleep from the schedule, right? You've got, you've got all of these hours in a week and you remove the time that you spent sleeping. There is no environment that you spend more time in than your workplace. And there are no people that you spend more time around than your workplace associates. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your mama, not your pets. Unless you work at home right now. Some of y'all spend a little bit more time than what you really want to with some of those people. But work takes up a significant part of our life. I want you to, I want to put it this way. Let me, let me rephrase my goal in such a way that hopefully to try to help connect to you and make sense. That what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to equip you with six decisions that you can make or declarations that will position you as a valuable member to your workplace, wherever that is, and as a valuable contributor to the kingdom of God. I don't know if you know it, but God's desire is that we don't pick and choose which one we're more valuable to. God's desire, if you belong to Jesus, if you are a part of his family, his desire is that you bring immense value to your place of business, to wherever it is that you do your work, and immense value to his kingdom. And I want to help you see, and I want to help you unpack that. And in order to do that, we've got to spend a little bit of time defining what success is. And to do that, I want to go to the Bible because how many of you know the Bible is where we get all the good stuff? So if you have your Bible, open them up to Matthew chapter 4, turn them on to Matthew chapter 24, and if you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the verses on the screen and help you out. And I'm going to run through this fairly quickly, and I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing, he starts off and he says, for the kingdom of heaven, verse 14, what Jesus is doing, he's describing how things work or ought to work or should work or do work in his kingdom, and because it's how it works in his kingdom, it's how it ought to work in our lives. And then he goes on to say, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called to his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and immediately went on his journey. So there's a, there's a guy who has stuff, he's getting ready to leave, and he is entrusting some of his stuff to some people. He gave one dude five, he gave one, one chick two, and he gave somebody else one, all right? And then notice what it says, verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received the two gained two more also. But he who had received the one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. You see what's happening here. Two of them went to work. One of them buried it. Verse 20. So he who had received five talents came, uh, I'm sorry, verse 19. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, uh, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So these two servants settled the accounts with their master like, hey, listen, you invested this into me. I went and put it to work and I'm bringing not only the investment, but the reward, the, 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 the interest. I'm bringing it all back and I'm giving it back to you. And the master says, man, good job. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Then verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there, there you have what is yours. He gives the one talent back to him. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. 
So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he who will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a glimpse of how God's economy works. Jesus is painting a picture of what success is and how it happens. I want to recap it with you. I want you to remember it started with, a, with servants. The master had, had, was leaving. He was trusting these servants with his stuff. I don't know if you know this or not, but when we read at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascended into heaven, and when he ascended into heaven, he gave his servants, the disciples, a job. He says, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you until the end of the age. Just before he ascended into heaven, he clarified and he says, go be my witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. What is Jesus doing? And Jesus is the master and he is leaving and he is entrusting his servants with the most, most precious investment, which is the message of life, of hope, of good news that is found only in the belief and the trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you're, not, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, can I just tell you, I want you to know this today, that the, 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 that the, only, the only opportunity that we have to really begin to understand and get a sniff of what success is really like is when we get connected to the author and the giver of life, which is Jesus. We can, we can acquire things, we can stack stuff up, but none of that stuff necessarily equals success. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you have an opportunity to experience true success in God's eyes. And that's what Jesus is explaining here. So it started with some servants and the next there was an assignment. The master entrusted his goods to these servants. And then there was the decision. Each of the three servants made a decision. Two decided to take what their master had given them, the investment he had given them, and put it to work. And one, motivated by fear, took what the master had given him and buried it. And said, I'm just gonna hold on to it. I'm not gonna let anyone else see it. I'm not gonna let anyone else touch it. I'm gonna cover it up because I don't wanna lose it. And then ultimately, the last part of it is the reward. That those who chose to invest, no matter whether they had five talents or two talents, they brought back not only the initial investment, but they brought back interest with that investment, and they received from their master the reward. The reward was, what, was not, by the way, more money. The reward for the master was to be able to be entrusted with more. for the one who chose to do nothing. Well, he got nothing and what he had was taken away. So how do we define success? I think the problem oftentimes when we live in 21st century America, we oftentimes think about success and the question is usually, man, how do, we, do I become successful? I don't think that that's inherently a wrong question but I don't believe it's the first question that we should ask. I think the first question that we should ask is, how should I define success? Now, if you don't have a biblical or Christian worldview, some of the things I'm gonna tell you today is not gonna make sense, it's not gonna compute. But if you're here today and you do have a biblical worldview, you have a relationship with Jesus, some conviction of knowing that, that he is your savior and he is your Lord, then how you define success is critical. And I believe what Jesus is teaching, here, teaching us in this parable of the talents is that success is returning back to God both the investment and the interest that he gave you. It's, it's, it's being entrusted with God. All of us were designed by God, wired by God, and created with God according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that he created us with an investment of good things inside of us. He created us with a purpose. Psalms tell us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that the God of heaven fashioned every single one of us and created every single one of us. And in the process of that creation, he deposited something that was to be used, an investment, something that was from him. It is not from yourself. You're not interested in what you're interested in just because you just chose to be interested in it. You're not introverted or extroverted. You're not a people person or a bookworm. You're not any of those things just because one day you decided to be that way. God hardwired you with those things. 
Those are divine gifts, divine investments from the Lord. And he has put that inside of every single one of us. And so when we think about the definition of success, we have to think about it from a, from a godly perspective, that God is the one who gave it to us. And our, our view of success, according to what Jesus has painted here in this section of scripture, is that we have taken all of the investment that God gave us, we put it to work and, re, and got interest for it. And then when God comes back, when we get to heaven or when Jesus comes comes back to settle it all up, that we're able to bring back to him all of the initial investment plus the interest and say, God, it's all yours. What I like about this definition is that it's not limited to a tax bracket. It's not dependent upon an income level. It's not de determined by a job title. It's not determined by whether where, where your position is in the office complex, whether or not you're in the, the, the storage closet, you're the cubicle in the middle, or you got the corner office. None of that matters. Here's the other thing that I like about this is that there is no separation between the secular and the sacred. Oftentimes, we have a tendency to want to divide and create a separation between the secular, the things that happen in this world, and the sacred, the spiritual. And what I wanna help you see today is that, that the secret sauce works within the context of understanding that God never makes such a separation. He never intends the sacred or the secular to be separated. Let me, I want to dive into this just a little bit more because I feel like I need to kind of unpack this in order to bring some clarity around it. That the secular, what is the secular, uh, what do I mean by the secular aspect of success? So many of us spend our lives focused primarily on the secular mindset of success. The secular mindset of success is usually measured by something that you can count. How many homes do I have? How much money is in my bank account? How much is in my 401k? How many kids do I have? Secular success is usually defined by the journey, the process by which we can acquire and accumulate more. I want to say unequivocally today that there is nothing wrong with being successful in the world's eyes. There's nothing wrong with being good at your work. There's nothing wrong for being good at your work and being compensated accordingly. In fact, I would go so far to say that I believe that though you cannot control how much you are compensated, you can control how good you are at your job. And I believe, and I'm going to show you in just a second, that God, God actually prescribes to us, declares to us, and expects us to be good at our jobs. Colossians says it this way in chapter 3 and verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do some, no, 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 do part of, no, no, do the parts that you like the most, uh -uh. do all, which by the way, that includes the part of the job description that usually says an extra duties as assigned. Do all for the glory of who? The Lord. You see, here's the problem. The reason why we so oftentimes want to separate the secular from the sacred is because we oftentimes think about what we do in the workplace as to the glory of me. If I sell enough, I'll make the million dollars club. If I lead well enough, they'll make me, they'll put me in the, in the, in the, in the executive suite. If I teach well enough, then, 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 then I'll win teacher of the year. If I coach well enough, then I'll get, the, I'll get the bonus because we did well. But God is saying that whatever you do, not, not, not just what you do when you're at church, not just what you do when you're at home, not just what you do when you're reading your Bible or you're praying, no, whatever you do, in everything that you say, in everything that you do, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father through him. Let me give you a couple nuggets here. The first is that I think sometimes we live and operate in this perspective that work is a bad thing. There's even some bad theology, um, depending on where you grew up in church, if you grew up in church, that some even say that work is a part of the curse that God gave humanity because Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. 
but that's not true. Work, if you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, work was a gift that God gave humanity. Work was a gift that God gave them because it allowed them to be able to leverage their life and their, 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 their genius and the, the, the good things that God put in them allowed them to be able to use those things for something that mattered. God even said it's not good that man should be alone, just chilling on the couch with a bag of potato chips or a baker's dozen of donuts. That's not good for you. So not only did he give Adam a spouse and Eve, but in the process, he also gave Adam work to do, which helped define his, not his worth and his value, but it helped shape and frame his identity. Not because his identity was tied or defined by what he did, but because his identity and who he was as a son of the most high God was able to be exercised to the world around him by reflecting the work that God the Father did in him by reflecting that good work to everything he touched around him. Here's a second little, not really a nugget, but a soapbox. Can I talk to all my millennial friends? I am a millennial. Can I just tell you that in our time in the workforce, the revolutionary idea has been from leadership about um, putting people in their sweet spot. What are they really, really good at? Let's do personality assessments, gifts assessments. Let's assess this, that, and the other. And, and we, we've, there's never been a time where there's been a generation of people more self-aware of their gifts and their wiring and their personality and all that. And it is true, it's good leadership. If it's a good leader, if you wanna make the most, get the most out of your people, you're gonna put them in a place where they're able to do their best work, the stuff that they're best at, the stuff they're passionate about, you're gonna align that with their job description. But can I tell you that one of the troubling things that I see of my generation is too often times we go, you know, I'm not really good at that. That's not really in my sweet spot. That doesn't really align with my giftings. As from one millennial to another, can I just say, shut up and go to work? Now, that was not a very unifying moment. The point isn't to cast stones at you. Can I just tell you that, that there is a part of the development process, there's things that you don't yet have that are required to be in the position that you desire, that being in this position in God's infinite wisdom has placed you there so that you can learn to grow and to cultivate those things so that when the door of opportunity knocks, you can be ready to walk into that opportunity for the position that you desired because you realize, man, this is an opportunity for the rough edges to get rounded off, to pick up some new skills and put some new tools in the tool belt. Let me also just say this to my millennial friends. There's a reason you don't make what you want to make financially. Here's the reason why. Because you're not worth it yet. You don't have the skills, the gifts, the experience, the expertise to be in that position. And even if you are in that position, you're not being compensated accordingly as someone who is an expert because you're probably not an expert yet and that's okay. So from one millennial to another, man, I just believe that you will be so much better served, not by complaining about your boss or my work environment. They keep asking me to do all this stuff. I don't really know how to do it. I'm not very good at it. Man, you will be so much better served if you will say, God, thank you for the opportunity to be placed in a position where you are stretching me and growing me. You created me fearfully and wonderfully. You know what you've put inside of me. You know what my passions and my desires and my interests are. And you know I'm not ready for that yet because if I was in that situation, I would be a miserable and abject failure. God, thank you that you've placed me in a position where I can, in the comfort of safety, without all the pressure of expectation, grow and learn and cultivate and try and attempt without the, 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 the pressure of not just me failing, but the whole company or department or division failing. God, thank you in your infinite wisdom. You've created an environment for me to be able to learn and cultivate some things so that I can be ready to not just walk in and flounder, but walk in and do well when I get the opportunity. You would be so much better served with that mindset. All right, I'm off my soapbox now. 
By the way, there's some of you that don't get paid in paychecks. When you focus on becoming more valuable to the home team, instead of necessarily trying to um, be a certain type of parent, a certain type of mom, having a certain type of house, because that's what you saw from somebody on social media or whatever, if you can take your focus away from that and just focus more on just, man, I just want to bring the most value as I can to our home, things will begin to change for you. What is the sacred? The, the sacred. I talked about the secular. The sacred is the spiritual work that you're called to do as a child of the king. The sacred is a part of your job description that was written by the Holy Spirit. It's not written by corporate, but it's written by the Spirit of God on your heart to go and be a shining light and example to the world. Matthew 5, 16, you might be familiar with this verse. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they could see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Oftentimes we use this verse in the context of serving people. Go help people, go, go help the neighbor, go be a, a, good, you know, a good neighbor to somebody in need. But, but what if we were to use this verse in the context of our work environments? What if it's, maybe it's possible that Jesus maybe have literally have, have meant, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good work, the good work that you do at work, that the people go, man, why are you doing this so well? you can say, well, I mean, because I'm not really working for the man. I'm not working for the person whose name is at the bottom of the paycheck. I'm working for the king. And everything I do reflects on my king. And if I do shoddy work, it reflects on my king who doesn't do shoddy work. So I want to dive into this in the last couple minutes that I have. Again, just reminding us, how are we defining success? Success is returning back to God both the investment and the interest of all that he gave you. And so what are the two key ingredients that we've got to know? I'm going to give them both to you at the same time, then I'm going to unpack them briefly. All right, here they are. The first two ingredients that you have to choose to be holy and you have to choose to be hardworking. The reason why I'm giving you these at the same time is because what I want you to see is that oftentimes we choose one or the other. That sometimes we think, well, I, I'm going to go to work and I'm just going to be holy. I'm just going to love people, love Jesus. I'm going to lead a Bible study. Yet your supervisor continues and says, I need you to do more work. Or some of you work so hard and you do so great at work. But the way that you look at work throughout the week and the way that you look when you're here at church, ooh, that's two different people. And what God wants us to understand is that the secret sauce, you have to be equal parts of both. You have to choose to be holy and you have to choose to be hardworking. Let me talk about being holy for a second. The Greek word holy uh, is from the Greek word hagios, which means to be a saint. Oftentimes when you think about someone who is a saint, what Jesus uses, anytime that, that this word holy is used in scripture, it's usually in reference to somebody who is physically pure or more and morally blameless. That's what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to be physically pure in the things that we see, the things that we do, the places that we go, either physically or virtually. And he calls us to be morally blameless. Another way to think about being morally blameless is, is could somebody accuse you of something that is wrong? It's not about whether or not you're guilty of doing something that's wrong. It's whether or not you could be accused of something because you have flirted with something that's wrong and someone could associate you with that thing. Could they accuse you of being blamed of something? First Peter 1 tells us this. Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust. So what he's saying is, is he's saying, take up the grace that you have in Christ, the grace you received when you trusted in him for salvation. When you were moved from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, when you were picked up off the trash heap of spiritual death and God picked you up and changed you and made you new and rearranged you and set you on your feet as a new creation. Hold on to that same grace and look at the things that you used to do. And he says, be obedient, not conforming to yourselves to your former lust. Not, not, don't, don't, don't continue to live the same way that you used to live. Can I just tell you, as a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't talk the same way, use the same language that you did before you met Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, your interests should probably change. The things that consume your mind should probably change. The things that keep you up at night, 
either with panic and anxiety or with excitement and daydreams, should probably change. So he says, be as obedient children, not conforming uh, yourselves to your former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy. Remember, what is holy? It is physically pure and morally blameless. As he who called you is holy, he's referring to God. As God called you to salvation, you responded. As he is holy, you also be holy in how much of your conduct? Some of it? What's that word? The stuff you do when you're at work? Yes. What you do when you're at home? Yes. What you do when you're by yourself and no one else sees except for you and the Lord? Yes. There should, not be a, there should not be a significant division between the way that you present yourselves when you're here with the church family from the way that you present yourselves to your home family or to your work family. Somebody shouldn't be surprised if they were to walk with you in church, at your house, and at work. They shouldn't be surprised to see different people. They should see consistently the same person. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. This little nugget is quoting something from Leviticus. When God was calling the children of Israel, he was talking to them about what they can and cannot eat. And he was specifically talking about don't eat unclean animals. I don't have time to go into all of that detail, but he lists all of these unclean animals. He said, listen, don't eat these animals because when you eat of these animals, you will fill your belly with things that aren't good for you and it will defile you. And what God is doing here in 1 Peter, he's saying, listen, in the same way when you consume things that you shouldn't consume that defile you, it creates, it creates distance between you and God. And God said, listen, be holy as I am holy. Don't bring things in that are going to create hindrances and barriers into your relationship with who I am and what I want to have with you. Be holy because I am holy. This is the first ingredient and it's the most important ingredient. You might be successful in the world's eyes. You might be able to accumulate a lot of wealth. You might have a sweet house and a nice car and a beautiful spouse and amazing kids. You might have the best Instagram pictures from your vacation. But for me, I didn't really begin to understand what success in life was until I was able to get connected with the creator of life. And I began to live a life that pursued holiness. But how does this work? Because I still screw up. Maybe you still screw up. We have to understand there's two parts to this idea of holiness. The first part of it is this, this idea of the being positionally holy. What does that mean? When you are positionally holy, it means that at the moment of your salvation, that all of your sins, past, present, and future, were forgotten. They were removed from you. Scripture says they were removed from you as far as the east is from the west. What that means is, is that positionally, according to the, 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 the book in heaven that your name is written on if you belong to Jesus, you are positionally holy. God already sees you through the lens of Jesus, your sin being covered, your, 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 all the things you screwed up and messed up being paid for, and God looks at you positionally as being holy. Because if you were to die today and you know Christ, you're gonna get to heaven, you're gonna be allowed access into heaven because positionally you are holy. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. All right, that's, that's positionally holy. But here's the wrestling act. The wrestling act is that positional holiness is something that is currently true in an eternal reality that we don't get the opportunity to see or understand yet. What we live in is the physical reality. And so now we have to wrestle with, with the practical, practically holy. What is this idea of being practically holy? Well, positional holiness is a gift that God has given you, but practical holiness is a wrestling match. It's a struggle. Because practical holiness is all about trying to align your life day to day, moment by moment, positionally, practically, with what's going on in your life, with what is positionally already true. What does this mean? It means that you're going to screw up because you're not in heaven yet. You're still a sinful person. And the point of us wrestling, choosing to be holy as God is holy and the pursuit of holiness is recognizing, God, I don't have to continue to do those things because I'm already holy in your sight. 
But when I screw up, when I mess up, when I stumble and fall again, I'm not gonna allow that to become a long habitual thing. No, I'm gonna say, God, I mess it up again. I thank you for the blood of Jesus. Cover me for my sin. Thank you that you see me as positionally holy already and allow me to be able to continue to pursue practical holiness by no longer continuing to struggling in this area of sin. It's a lifelong pursuit. And the struggle, listen to me, the struggle is very, very real. But what God is saying, he said, listen, I want you to be holy like I am holy. He's saying you are already positionally holy, but I want you to fight the fight. I want you to struggle. I don't want you to just roll over and surrender and go, well, I'm predisposed because my family had issues with this or that or the other thing. I'm just predisposed for the rest of my life to always be that way. Screw that. In the name of Jesus, because the Bible says that you are a new creation, old things, generational patterns, generational struggles, generational sins have passed away. Behold, all things of possibility, of hope, of freedom, to break the cycle, to break the chains, all things have been made new. So struggle well, knowing that the point of continuing to follow Jesus is to trying to align the, the, the practical reality with what the positional reality is. Is that making sense? And the last thing that I want to tell you, you got to choose to be holy because when you choose to not be holy, it contaminates you. It creates distance between you and God and it's difficult for God to bring a blessing into your life when you have created separation in your relationship. First thing you have to do is you have to choose to be holy. The second thing you have to choose to be is hardworking. When I was a youth pastor, some of you may know I was a youth pastor for 12 years. And uh, if you've spent time in church, then you have probably um, understood that youth pastors usually have a reputation. Youth pastors usually have a reputation of being immature, irresponsible, professionally unpolished. And I get that, man. All of those things were true about me when I was getting started. But I came across so many youth pastors that frustrated me because I felt like they, they gave the profession a bad name. I talked to these youth pastors. We'd get together every once in a while and, and connect and try to learn and grow and encourage and challenge each other. And man, I can't tell you how many times about, like, man, what's going on with you? It's like, oh man, it's good. And we'd start talking about what we're doing in our lives and our days. And man, so many youth pastors I talked to, it's like your job description is eating pizza, drinking energy drinks, and playing video games. And I get mad. I'd be like, listen, man, I'm out here busting my tail trying to reach some kids for Jesus and all you seem to care about is filling your belly with stuff that sounds good, tastes good, and feels good. Bro, if that's what you want to do, go back to college. Like, if you're going to be in the ministry, if you're going to be a youth pastor, like, you need to, you need to have, it needs to be a problem for you that there are teenagers in their families who are going to die and go to hell if they don't learn and listen to Jesus. And so, man, I would just get so frustrated and think, man, you guys are so lazy. Remember what Jesus talked about? The master said to the, to the one who was given the one talent. Remember what happened? He gave the one talent and he buried it. Why don't you notice what he said? He says, but his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. You see, laziness is something that should never, ever be associated with a child of God. I'll prove it to you. I want to give you a couple of verses from Proverbs. I'm going to rattle through these in case you, you know, you're not sure about it. Proverbs 10 says, he who has a slack hand becomes poor. I mean, someone who, you know, has a slack hand, doesn't work. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. Proverbs 12 says this, those who work their land will have an abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. Proverbs 26 says, a sluggard buries his, I love this, a sluggard buries his hand in the dish, right? Like he's, he's lazy. I think about the couch potato eating the potato chips. He buries his hand in a bag of chips and he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth.
Like, that's award-winning laziness. Can I just tell you, this isn't prosperity theology stuff. This is common sense stuff that God is trying to help us understand. And here's what, I, here's what I believe. I just believe that everywhere we go, Christians should be the hardest workers in the room. If we really believe that God has called us to do all things for the glory of the Lord, not the glory of me, then every environment that we walk into, Christians should be viewed as the hardest workers. Now, let me qualify this statement because what I'm not saying is that Christians should be the ones that forsake their family and spend all of their hours at work. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that you should say yes to every opportunity for the sake of being a hard worker. I'm not saying that hard work is hashtag all about that grind. We should work hard, but we should also work smart. We need to recognize what our priorities are, that God is our chief priority, our family is our second priority, and our work is our third. And if we live out of balance of that and we're saying that we're working hard, no, you, you might be working hard, but you a fool. Because while you're working hard, you're losing the stuff that matters the most to you, at least that's what you said matters the most to you when you're with your spouse, when you're with your kids, but your time and where you allocate your time says that actually what matters most to me is what they think of me in the place of work, not what you think of me as your spouse or as your parent. Christians should be the hardest workers in the room. We should take everything that we do, we should work with precision and skill. We should do it to the best of our ability. Why? Because it reflects on our Lord. And not just because it reflects on our Lord, but because success, what you're looking for, is usually found on the other side of hard work. My hope is is that you would choose to be the type of person who would apply these ingredients of the secret sauce to your life. My hope is that, that, that as we finish this series next week, that, that you would be able to take these and see these things and, and go, okay, I can, uh, the, the, the secret sauce and the ingredients to the secret sauce aren't just like garnishes that I add to, add to something to my life. The secret sauce is actually a recipe that, that God has given me that if I will take the elements, if I will choose to be holy, if I will choose to be hardworking, then I have the key ingredients for God to bring and to lead me to a point of success. Remember how we define success. The success is defined by taking the investment and returning it back to God with all of the interest. Because ultimately, none of the things that you do with your hands are ever only about you. I love this quote, and I want to end on this. I couldn't find who originated this quote. But the reality of it is, is that there's somebody that's in the room today and, and you're, you're thinking about this and you're going, okay, this is great, you know, I, I'm doing fine. I don't know that I need to just completely overwhelm my life with all this Jesus stuff. And but I'd be willing to say, if you've leveraged all of your energy and effort into success in your work life or your home life, and you don't consider what God calls us to be when he calls us to be holy, that there are some things that are gonna be out of whack and out of balance for you. And I love this quote because it says, success isn't just having lots of money. Culture has told us that that's what success is. Success has been defined by culture. And we keep being told that it's all about how much money you have. Songs have been written over and over and over again about how much money I have, how much money I can get. We've been told over and over and over again that, that the measure of who I am as a person is counted in dollars and cents. The God who created you does not measure you that way. I believe that there will be people in heaven who are incredibly rich rich on earth. Did great things on earth. 
seen by everybody on earth as a success in the world's eyes. And God will say, well done. Like the master said to the one with the five talents. I also believe there's going to be a whole bunch of average people. Blue collar Joes. Who never had a ton of money. Who will also get to heaven and God will say, well done. You see, success isn't determined by the money. Success is determined by what you do with what the God of heaven put inside of you. Success isn't just having lots of money. Many people with lots of money have horribly unhappy and radically imbalanced lives. Do you know somebody like that? Perhaps you're here today, or you're tuning in online, and maybe your measure of what a lot of money is maybe isn't what you want it to be, but maybe that's you. You see, God doesn't want to bring a division between the sacred and the secular. God wants to see you be successful in every element, in every area, in every environment of your life. Because he wired you to reflect his goodness and to radiate his glory for all to see. And the secret sauce to success, it starts with choosing to be holy and choosing to be hardworking. And next week, I'm going to fill the rest of the ingredients in. And I promise you, if you will make it your mission, day in and day out, in every environment, and say, God, I'm going to be that kind of person, then here's what I believe that you'll find. I believe that you'll find God go, good. Now watch me work in you, and watch me work through you. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.